Morning, Grace Church. It's good to see you. Uh, it's a beautiful day. We had, uh, I'm Scott, by the way, if we've never met one of the pastors here at Grace. Um, last night we had Hallapalooza. Josh just talked about it. It was a lot of fun, and I was a success. Great job, Kim and the team. It was awesome. Uh, when I, I was here early, and then my wife showed up, and she decided to um, surprise me, and she... <laughs> She dressed up as her, um, her favorite superhero, actually. I don't know who it is. It's like a, a redneck superhero, but she, you know, it's still alive. So what will you be tomorrow? This is, I just wanted to give you an option. That's it. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> if you're new, um, we've been going through the book of Mark all year, and it's been great. It's, it's been um, fun, and it's been challenging, it's been good on, on many levels, um, but something we know is that some passages are, they feel good to go through, they, they, it feels really good, and the content um, lends itself to just, a, we walk away feeling great about ourselves, and sometimes others not so much, right? Sometimes it's confronting, and it deals with things inside of ourselves that just doesn't sit right, and we wrestle with the scriptures together, and it's a beautiful journey of learning and growing to become a disciple of Jesus from a biblical context. So last week we started in chapter 10 of uh, Mark, and you can turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to continue on, and we're going to look at two stories that are linked together uh, in a unique way. And my hope is to somewhat link them together and, and tell you one big story, even though it appears that they are separated. So. I want to dive right in and read from chapter 13 to 16, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. It says this, they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, uh, that he might touch them, and the disciples, the disciples rebuked them, they rebuked the parents and the kids. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, as I said, last week, Pastor Josh opened up chapter 10 and started reading. And it was the issue of divorce and some of us, that was very uncomfortable, and it was difficult. Um, but what's interesting is Mark chose to go from divorce to little children, and then as we see in a moment, he totally turns and, and does something else. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is this? And I want to uh, kind of link all of this together somewhat. Part of the cultural context is knowing what's happening in the culture at that time and not just reading it from our eyes, but from theirs, the original audience. The issue of divorce is, was about God's design for man and women and what was good for all of us and uh, for humanity. But part of this cultural context is knowing that in those days, women were very and in every way dependent and vulnerable upon men. In every way, they were dependent upon men for provision, to provide for them. Men were the only ones that were working in those days. So there was, in what we read last week, was an elevating of the seriousness of marriage and divorce. And in addition to describing God's design for us, it also serves as a protection for women. 
because they were what? Two things. They were dependent and they were vulnerable, right? They were dependent upon man and because of their dependence, they were vulnerable without the husband in the home. So what does this have to do with these kids? Like what is this, why, does, why are these things together? You see, children now and were and currently are some of the most vulnerable and dependent in the world, right? They are so dependent. They are so vulnerable in our society and our day. We just saw these little kids, and they're great, but they'll do things that are nuts, and we have to guide them and direct them and save them and provide for them and change their gross diapers and do all those things that we have to do for them. And I've done that. I've been there. Some kids are more dependent than other kids, and some of you need to cut the cord and let them be independent. My kids are, maybe some of them, I, I like to say my kids are independent, 10, 13, and 15. And I'm, we're kind of at that stage now where if they don't clean up after themselves, I'm, I'm a little snarky, and I say, oh, I'm sorry, the, the maid called in sick today. If you would just clean up, I'm sorry you have to go through this. <laughs> and so we play that game, right? I'm making them independent. That's what we must do. But kids at different stages and at different degrees are dependent upon their parents. And because of their dependence, like the women in the divorce scenario, they are vulnerable. So these parents are bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed by Jesus. The disciples want to send them away. they like, don't bother my rabbi. They rebuke them, it says, telling them to leave Jesus alone. And as normal with the disciples, they just kind of don't get it. So Jesus gets frustrated with them, tells them to let the children come, and he blesses them, and it ends up being great, right? But he says this in 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what I want you to see about this, because we're going to move on, and then at the end we're going to come back, is that there is something about understanding children that Jesus wants us to see and that helps us understand the kingdom of God. There's just something about understanding children. Jesus wants us to see, and that helps us to understand the kingdom of God. And so this is going to be important at the end of the message. And so Mark lays this out in three verses, and then it's a hard stop. And then he goes and takes a turn into a completely different story. And that's where we're going to pick up the meat of our passage and content today. In verse 17, read along with me. It says this, and he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey. A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. A lot of people debate this, like people, biblical scholars will debate whether this man was genuine or not in his approach to Jesus. So on one side of the coin, they say he was genuine because he ran up, right? He saw the urgency when he saw Jesus, and he knelt, he showed honor and reverence and respect to the rabbi Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. But then on the other side, and you'll see why in a moment, there's a lot of people who debate it and say, no, he wasn't genuine. He just wanted the approval of Jesus to sprinkle a little Jesus on top of his well-groomed life. So that is the debate, and we'll see where we land. 
but he calls Jesus a good teacher. And this term that was used, it wasn't a normal term to use to describe a rabbi. In fact, rabbis would use it to describe Yahweh or God of the Old Testament. They would use this term, and it meant good master, because the only one that was good, pure and holy and sinless was God. And so rabbis would use this description for Yahweh. It wasn't normal for people to use that for rabbis. But Jesus asked him a question. And he is question, questioned back to the man. Some use this as an argument to say that Jesus was denying his deity, and he is not. What I believe is that he is inviting this man into a reflection of this question about himself. What's interesting, and I love this about Jesus, uh, he often did this. He answered questions with other questions. He rarely directly answered a question if you scan through the Gospels. Within the Gospels, Jesus asked 180, is asked 183 questions. You know how many answers directly? Three of them. Like, okay, way to be vague there, Messiah. He answers only directly three questions out of 183. What that means is 180 times he responds mostly with either another question or a parable or a story. Instead, Jesus, throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, he asked 307 questions. Like he was a questioner. Why does he do this? I believe it's because we, as a people, and the people he was interacting with, we should reflect our hearts as we approach our creator. And he is causing a reflection and causing us to think as we approach who Jesus is and what he is about. So let's keep going in the text. Jesus says this to, the, to this young man. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father. Honor your mother. And he said to him, the man says to Jesus, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. I've done this. I'm good. I'm moral. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. I want you to go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And there's the invitation. But his response, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. Now this young man, if you've studied this piece of scripture, and if you've been around the church and you've heard this preached before, this man is known as the rich young ruler. He is wealthy. You know, in that culture in those days, to have wealth was rare enough, but to be that young and to be wealthy was even more rare. He accomplished so much at a young age. But on top of it, he says he was a keeper of the Mosaic law. He was a good guy to any Jew in Israel in the time. This was a good dude. Like they would look at him and say, he is good. There was a belief system in the culture that if you had wealth, that had meant that you had honored and followed God's law. So the better you were sometimes, the more wealthy you were. And so when you looked at a wealthy person in the culture, you would say, he must, have been, he must be a really, really good man. So that's him. That's how he's perceived. And that's how he perceives himself. This is the cultural ethic of that day. 
And honestly, it's still the cultural ethic in a lot of ways in our time and in our day. So let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about the value system of our world. We live in a world with performance-based acceptance, right? We all know this. This is true for our kids. This is true for us in every way. We use phrases like, live your best life and be the best version of you. Because we know that the better we are, the more successful we are. This creates in us this value of production and perceived success. We must be the best. We must earn. We must chase the things of the world so we can thrive in the world, right? This is who we are. This is our ethic. We must have the success, and we, we at least need to present ourselves as successful. That's what we do in our day. We see it all over social media. If you're, some of you are like, I don't even know what social media is. That's fair, but a lot of us do. And so we post it, and we see it, and we get envious of other people. We see the travel, the food, the family, the house, the car. We see all this success, and we present ourselves in the best way possible as we chase just all the things, right? We do this. None of us are exempt. We are all attached to our success in life, people or things. And so for you, you have to ask yourself, I must ask myself, what, is the, what are those things? What is the thing? It's often a person or, or thing, right? So ask yourself, like if you were to lose that, what is it that you would lose that you would also lose yourself? You must ask yourself that because this rich young ruler, he's having, he needs to ask himself that. I say to myself all the time, what, who am I? Like, who am I? If you were to ask me who I am, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, and those three things are the most important things in my life. So I need to ask myself, it's not just for you, it's for all of us, are those things, those three things, a husband, a father, and a pastor, could those be an idol for me? Might, maybe, they might. And I need to ask myself, I must examine myself in that way. Because I know that when you love something or someone so much that it gives me my identity, my meaning, my purpose, I am replacing God with a substitute. And you can fall on that too. We can all fall on that. Or let's think of it this way. Because some of us are like, yeah, that, no, that's not me. Who is the first person you call when things go bad? What's your first thought? I'm going to call this person. I need to talk it out. What is the first thing you do to cope? What are the things you, th- you catch yourself thinking about the most? Or what are those themes in your life you get most angry at? And if you took an audit of all of your spending, what do you spend your most money on? And all of those things can clue us into what our idols are, what we're attached to so much. All those things that are potential substitutes for God. Because those substitutes are called idols. And the rich young ruler has idols. His possessions are an idol. So this scripture may be, seem very innocent and friendly, but I think as we really, really read it, it should disturb us a bit. It should confront the things inside of us. And if you're resisting that confrontation, don't. Because we need to use this and let the scriptures read us and examine ourselves in this way. I like Tim Keller's words and his definition of an idol. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. 
Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Think about that. The rich young ruler, it was his stuff. It was his morality, right? He kept the law. I did these things since my youth. But it was his stuff. When confronted with, can you lose your possessions? No, he couldn't. That's something he wasn't willing to give away. It was something that he saw the confrontation and he said no to. But these were his idols. He kept the law. He was moral. Himself, his own morality became an idol. He trusted in these things and in himself more than he trusted in God. What are those things for us? What are those things that we're trusting in more than we're trusting in God? Because in him... It was his success. It was his wealth. He goes to those things constantly for for comfort, for peace, for joy. And they become the safety blanket in life. They can almost save him, right? There's the substitution. There's the replacement. There's the idol. The thing about idols is sometimes they're not bad things. Sometimes they're good things. And you know this because you have a family and you love them. You know that you have some success in your career or maybe in education and school and your friends. And those aren't bad things. Those are often gifts. Those are gifts from God to you. They're from him to you. But the problem is we have the tendency to turn a gift from God into a replacement for God. Thus, before we even know it, we have ourselves an idol. It becomes an idol. And what happens is it takes a hold of us and it begin, begins to decrease our ability to see our need for God because we constantly turn to him or to her or to those things. We latch onto them. Like we can't let them go. So we look to money and we look to sex, people, success, knowledge. We have our phones. We have our bank accounts. We have our hustle. Some of us have our Christian nationalism. For some of us, this church is your idol. We look at all the things. And often, if and when we lose an idol, we'll quickly replace it with something else. Like we will. We'll we'll lose one thing, and so we'll fill it with something else. I was talking to my friend Patty Harris from Grace here. And I was talking through this story and this concept and talking about the loss of what could potentially be an idol. And we talked through that morning that I picked up my phone one morning and I saw a bunch of missed calls. And I learned that her son, Luke Harris, was killed tragically in an accident, in a car accident overnight. She lost her son. And that was six, seven years ago. And I, you know, I think about that, and it's like excruciating, right? Like I wouldn't, wor- wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But Patty never left her faith. She never left, left her faith. And so I just wanted to kind of tease that out and have a conversation with her and ask her why. Why did you never leave Jesus? Why did you never leave trusting Jesus? And just use her as a case study. And this is what she said. She said, what the rich... Uh, young rich man and I have in common is that we were both asked in different ways to trust and to follow. Turns out the biggest difference in the rich young man and myself is that when I lost my son, I discovered what I truly cherish most of all, trusting and following Jesus. 
And I just sigh and go, how do you do that? That is not easy. And for, some, for a lot of us, right, if we lose someone like that, it could destroy us. And I've seen so many people leave their faith because there was a loss there. There was something they were so attached to that by God, they, they would never give up that thing for God. And if they lost that thing, forget it. I'm going to blame God. But it was different with her, and I, I don't mean to put her up as an idol, but it's a very interesting thing because in talking to her and knowing her and knowing so many of your stories and the loss and the trauma and the pain and the things that we go through, we're broken, we're in a broken world, we're broken people, we have loss and we can lose those things that are idols. And a lot of times what happens then is then our loss becomes our idol, our trauma becomes our idol, our pain becomes our idol. There are things in your life that you're like, I'm not going to let go of this thing because what would I be without it? Whether it's good or painful, right? Whether it's people we have or people we lost, whether it's abuse or a divorce or whatever it is, it could be good or bad. And we lose those things and we lose our faith. And we have to ask ourselves, why? And were those things idols? Are they an idol? We have the tendency as humans to turn it to everything and anything. And we turn them into these idols because we look for them for meaning and for purpose and for fulfillment. So listen, idols create these false gods. And false gods replace the one and true living God who is the only one that can fulfill. And you may be on the fence with faith. You may be on the fence with Jesus. But I can tell you that in true sincerity and honesty is that the one and true only God, he's the only one that can fulfill you. So Jesus is confronting this young, rich, wealthy man, and he's confronting us all. He's confronting you, he's confronting me. I love officiating weddings. I just did a wedding two Sundays ago, and one coming up in Utah in a couple weeks, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Before, I... I enjoy doing premarital counseling. I require some of that uh, if I'm going to officiate a wedding. And I love doing that because I like to gauge like where they're at, right? And I like to offer resources and tools, and we walk through different things. One thing that we have to walk through, it's kind of a prerequisite. If you ask me to do your wedding, we're going to do this. I have to go back to Genesis 2. I have to go to the creation account, how he created God. Man, I won't get all into that right now. But how he brings them together to be one flesh. And we camp out on that statement so much. Because I want us to see that marriage is about abandoning so much of my individualism and saying, you're going to be more important than myself. And for you, I'm going to be more important than yourself. And when we do this in this mutual submission... We become one flesh. This is, it's beautiful. It's something that God created, and I like to just detail that out and how that works and plays in the relationship and how that builds to a marriage. But it's a process, and it's difficult. And for some, they, they do great. And some people have been recognizing that along the way, even without the biblical reference. They go, yeah, I need to not be so selfish. I need to not do this and that. It's about him or her and not myself, and it's awesome. And so we talk about that, and I give them tools to keep growing in those areas. And for other couples, I'm like, yeah, maybe we should wait a little bit and <laughs> keep working on that. Uh, 
I've never asked someone to wait, but I've been really, really close. <laughs> some truly are ready, and there's struggles. Nothing's perfect, but some are ready, and some aren't. And similarly, some of us are, have been dating Jesus, and we're not ready to marry him. Some of us have just been dating. We've been coming on Sunday, and hearing something, and it's inspiring and encouraging. We go home and we go back to the very same things that we're doing that's destroying us. We're going back to substances and, and people and codependent relationships and, and careers that we're dependent upon because that has my most meaning. Or he and she, that they play into who I am as a person. Or my little three reasons for living, my little sinful children, my boys, I'm talking about mine, not yours, like they are a part of who I am as a man. And so who would I be without them? And so for some of us, we're just dating Jesus because we're married to these other things. And Jesus is confronting that. That's exactly what's happening with this guy because he is married to his stuff. He's married to his success. And Jesus is saying, yeah, can't have me when you're married to everything else. You just can't. So this man, this guy, he wasn't ready. He wasn't willing. He couldn't let go and detach himself from his possessions, his success, his wealth, his stature, everything that he built himself up supposedly to be and to do. And Jesus, he went after the one thing that mattered to him most. Do you notice that? Like he didn't go, hey, let's talk about this area of sin in your life. He didn't do that. Or let's talk about your family. Or let's, he didn't talk about any of those things. He went after the very one thing that had the potential to turn him away from him. Like you can't get more confronting than that, right? Jesus did this. This is what he did. Because he's saying if you're holding these possessions up, then you're holding on to the world and you don't have room for me. In fact, you don't want me. And I wonder, like, what would, the, what would that question be for you and for me? What are, what are the, what's the one thing that if Jesus went after, we'd say, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can give that up today, maybe tomorrow. I don't know that I could put that down and follow you, even though that's the invitation. But that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's what it means to follow him. But it's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy. Your idols, my idols, they say come to me to get your needs met. And sometimes they even temporarily meet our needs. But Jesus says I am the only thing that can fulfill and meet and satisfy your needs. But I need you to release tension on your grip of everything else. I need you to look at those things and, and let them go. Drop everything and pick up your cross and die to yourself. That's what Jesus is asking of us. That's what he's asking of you. As Jesus is saying this, the disciples are right there. And they're like, what are you talking about? They're in awe and they're shocked. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And let's read that in 23. It says this, and Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, he calls them children, 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, of a needle, than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to Jesus, they said to him, then who can be saved? And this is what Jesus says. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So then Peter, he began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So Peter's like, yeah, but we've done this. Like, we're good, right? Surely we're in. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children for, or lands for my sake and for the gospel. He's saying, you haven't really given up everything. Like, you haven't really abandoned all to follow me. You're still attached to those things. Verse 30 says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age of, to come eternal life. But many who, will, who are first will be last and last first. Jesus is saying, listen, you can't do it. Like, you literally can't do it. You can't accumulate your stuff and have worldly success and think that that's what saves you. You can't. It's through me. It's not through you. You cannot save yourself. You cannot get all these things to fulfill yourself, to satisfy yourself. You cannot replace God with your independence. It's not something that's a reality. You can't manufacture your own salvation, or your own method to meet your own needs because you are a creation and you need the creator. That is who we are. That's what it means to be human. So here's this story before us, and now I want to go back to the very beginning, to the children. It's said in verse 15, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And remember I said this, there is something about understanding children that Jesus wants us to see and that helps us to understand the kingdom of God. Remember that? Here's what this means. Children are dependent upon us. Children are vulnerable. The rich young ruler is the complete opposite. He is autonomous and independent and self-made and because of that he is placed idols in front of him and he is worshiping those idols to meet his own needs to satisfy himself and for us Jesus is telling us no that's not how you do it that's not how you do it you do it through vulnerability you do it not through dependence upon others but on dependence upon myself for us this is so hard to do it's so hard to loosen our grip on these things that we have, right? I can identify it. We can't let them go. Because to put them down, what, what would that mean about us? Right? Like, what would that say about us? It would mean failure and insecurity and unsafety and the feeling of all those things. What our reputation would look like. If you put down the idol of your career, what would that say about you? Or if you put down the idol of your marriage, what would that mean for where you go and what you do and what church you go to or how to, just how to manage life? 
you put down the, the idol of consumption and money and achievement and job and all these things, what would that say about you? Your education, your friends, your family. So instead, we say no. We're often much like the rich young ruler than we think. And Jesus is saying, well, it's the only way to the kingdom of heaven. That's the only way into eternal life with me is that you have to put it all down. You have to lay those things down and say, yes, I will sell it all. I will give it to the poor and I will come and I will follow you. And like a small child, I say okay to vulnerability because that means I'm dependent upon my creator, my father. And so I say yes to that. But it's easier said than done. And this man, he said no. He walked away. And you know what the scary thing is about this? Here's what's scary. Jesus didn't stop him. Like he let him leave, right? So if you and I, we say no, like we have to have these things and we won't put them down to follow him, Jesus lets us go because he loves us that much. He'll give us the free will to not choose him. So it's scary, but I just wonder, I wonder what those idols are in your life and in my life that we just can't loosen our grip on, that we just can't let go because Jesus isn't going to stop you. He'll invite you. He'll challenge you to put them down. But if you don't choose them, it's on us, you guys. It's on us. The invitation is there. Just like it was for him, put it down and follow me. Come and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying every single morning you wake up, and it's our choice to choose him or to not. So we must examine ourselves. We have to look at ourselves deep inside of ourselves and say, how can I identify my idols? How can I identify those things? Your idol may be a person. It could be your spouse. It could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It could be your kids. It could be your friends. It could be a group of people that, you, that have identi- and identified themselves as a certain political party, and you're like, that's me. It is anyone that you hold more esteem for and value more than God himself. Anyone you trust more than God, that's your idol. Or maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a thing, or maybe it's both, right? Because with people, what we need to realize is that when we look to people for everything, we need to see and understand that what they offer is a gift from God's hand, and so you're idolizing the creation and not the creator. And so we'll always be, they, they will always be limited in their ability to meet our needs. And then if we look at things as our idols, that could look different because that can mean our bank account. That can mean our house, our car. That could mean our phones and social media. It can mean a substance. It can mean all the things that make us feel secure and safe and we can escape the world and run to and we can even see it for our salvation. It will save us. They become our identity instead of God. And when we don't look to God as the one to satisfy and meet our needs, we're just deceiving ourselves. So that's what's happening today. God is confronting the idol in this man's life and he's 
pinning it up against a dependent and vulnerable child. And that's what he's saying to us today. Which will you choose? Because you must become like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. So hear me. Your idols will never meet your needs. They will never meet your needs as much as we chase them. Your idols cannot save you. They ultimately will never, ever serve you. God is life and gives life. He is the only one that can satisfy our deepest needs. The only one capable to meet every single need that you and I have. Because he's the source of life, we weren't just made by him, we were made for him. And so we were made as humans, as creation, to be united and married to our creator. So let's be self-aware and let's recognize, let's admit our idols and let's let them go and let's lay them down and say, Jesus, you say come and follow me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to follow you. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look to your word, something that stands out, God, is you say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as we look at our idols Father, I pray that you would illuminate inside of ourselves as we examine ourselves, what are those idols? What are those things? Is it because we followed our way? Our way of living, our way of coping, our way of dealing with life, our own success, our own way of living, but you say, I am the way. And so Jesus, we repent and we follow your way, not ours. Father, in a world that says live your truth, I think a lot of us, for, at least for some of us, we've been following our own truth. This is what I believe to know and be true. Instead of your word, this is what I know to be true. And so I'm following that truth, my truth. So Jesus, today we repent. We say that that is an idol and we choose your truth. And Father, we have a different way of living, that we've been living life on our own agenda, after our own things, after our own mission and not yours. And so we repent. And when you say that you are the way, the truth, and the life, God, in this moment, will just say, I give you my life. For the rich young ruler, he couldn't do that. For the child... I pray that we would see ourselves just as vulnerable, dependent, and needy. Not in a put ourselves down way, but in a way, God, that would elevate the recognition of our need for you. We need you. Will you help us? May we depend upon you every day. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.